You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Today, in number seven, in our course for the International Catholic University on the norms of Catholic faith and tradition, we're going to be talking about uh, tradition and scripture. And before we talk about the relationship between those two things, I just want to read a few quotes, a few brief quotes from John Paul II, from Orientale Lumen, and what he has to say about tradition. Tradition is the heritage of Christ's church. This is a living memory of the risen one. It is not an unchangeable repetition of formulas, but a heritage which preserves its original, living, charismatic core. Tradition is never pure nostalgia for things of the past, nor regret for lost privileges, but the living memory of the bride, kept eternally youthful by the love that dwells within her. I think some wonderful thoughts by John Paul II, and I encourage you to read Orientale Lumen. Uh, that's a wonderful letter, and there's lots more on tradition in there. What I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about Scripture and tradition. In the Reformation, many people made them rivals or enemies. But the fact of the matter is that they're bound together in a way that you really can't uh, deny, and, and you really can't loosen one from the other. Tradition, if it's the oral living transmission of God's Word and the experience of God among us, then it really predates Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. As best we can tell, Abraham lived around 1850 B.C. David lived around 1000 B.C. Moses and the Ten Commandments happened around 1250 B.C. But the final form of the writings of the Old Testament of the first five books of the Bible and, and uh, even the writings about David those writings don't really date before 500 or even 400 B.C. So there are hundreds of years that the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the stories about David, that even the Ten Commandments stories, they were passed down in either oral form or in writings that we no longer have before they were put together in the, the books that we now have. So tradition, the passing on, um, uh, living memory, passing on of God's Word in the Old Testament predated the, uh, what happened, the actual writing of the Scriptures. That also is the case in the New Testament. I want to read the prologue of Luke's Gospel to you. And Luke's Gospel, we don't know when it was written for sure. People guess uh, often many uh, around uh, about the year 80, 85, something like that. Um, but here's what Luke says. Again, Luke is not a companion of Jesus. He's not one of the twelve. He's not one of the original eyewitnesses. But here's what he says. Quote, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events which have been fulfilled in our midst, precisely as those events were handed on. That's the word for tradition. Handed on to us by the original eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. First of all, we hear that Luke knows other people have tried to write Gospels, either the authors that we now know or other authors that we've lost. But he notes that what they were doing is putting down into writing 
what was handed on in a living fashion by the original eyewitnesses. So, Scripture is the primary written, inspired expression of the tradition with a capital T in a certain way. When we talk about Scripture and tradition side by side as, as two different modes of transmission, you know, we're making a distinction between the two. But fundamentally, Scripture is an expression of that living experience, that passing on. It's a unique expression. It's a privileged expression. There are many other written expressions of tradition. You have the fathers of the church. You have the doctors of the church. You have the saints. You have uh, the liturgical prayers that we have in our missal. Many times we don't know who wrote some of those prayers. Some of those prayers were found in missals that, that are you know, over a thousand years old. Um, and we still pray them every year. You know, the various prayers of the priest, the, the prefaces before um, you know, uh, the, the, the Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayers themselves. These are reflections of ancient prayers, many of them. They're passed on, written expressions of tradition. Now, it's, it's important to know something. There's no written expression of tradition that is called just plain, plainly the Word of God, like the inspired scriptures are. The inspired scriptures clearly stand head and shoulders above all other written expressions of, of the tradition. Uh, we don't read during Mass, during the Eucharist. We don't stand up and read selections from the Fathers of the Church. We don't even get up and read the writings of, of, of councils, of ecumenical councils. We read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John every Sunday, and we read selections from epistles and Old Testament books as well. Only the inspired scriptures have that special role of being read and uh, saluting them as the Word of God. So it's important to understand that scripture, although it's an expression of tradition, scripture is a norm for all other expressions of tradition. In the Middle Ages, scripture, there was a funny little Latin phrase that's uh, kind of easy to remember. Scripture was called the norma normans, non normata, which translates, it is the norm that norms other norms, but it itself is not normed. There's no other uh, supreme authority over the written expression of God's word, which is scripture. It is a supreme expression in, in writing. Okay, so tradition is expressed in scripture. Tradition is also normed by scripture, the writings of tradition. But without tradition, it's very hard to interpret scripture. There's a recipro reciprocal relationship that really they are inseparable. I'll give you an example of the way in which tradition is, is essential for the interpretation of scripture. There are many, many uh, people who take scripture and they, rip, they have no context for it and interpret it in a way that is clearly heretical. Why do they do that? Because they're interpreting it outside of the living context of tradition in which it's rightly understood. Okay, that's, that's really the problem. So tradition is an interpretive principle. Tradition is a hermeneutical principle. The lived life of the church supplies you with equipment that help you understand what scripture is saying. So scripture and tradition to together, together convey the word of God. Only together. When one is ripped out from the other, we have problems and we have a hard time hearing the fullness of the word of God. Now I want to talk about one other 
element of, of um, tradition, um, and that is doctrine. There's a lot of confusion about what the word doctrine means. Many times I find people hostile to the idea of doctrine, particularly in many Protestant communities, because uh, doctrine means rigid rules, regulations, and particularly um, things that you have to subscribe to, dry you know, propositions. But the word doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. It's the Latin word for teaching. And doctrine really is meant to give life. The teaching of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the church, all that is, in a global sense, doctrine. There's a historical theologian who began his career as a Lutheran, is now an Orthodox Christian. His name is Yaroslav Pelikan, and he wrote a book called The Christian Tradition. Actually, The Christian Tradition is a survey of historical theology in many, many volumes, and I would encourage people to, to pick up that volume and look at it, if not buy it, uh, that series of volumes. It's, it's probably the finest covering of the his, history of theology that I've seen. Anyway, in the preface, Pelican says this. Uh, he defines the word doctrine, and I think he, it's a good definition. He says, doctrine is what the church believes, what it teaches, and what it confesses on the authority of the Word of God. I would memorize that if I were you. I think that's a very helpful, helpful um, definition. And I want to break it down for you a little bit. What the church believes. Pelican means by that doctrine really begins, and you can discern it, and you can and learn from it by observing the way in which Christians believe, and the way they pray, the way they live. Doctrine is implicit in the life of Christians before it is even made explicit. So you can learn a lot about the doctrine of the church by reading, for example, the prayers in the Catholic Missal for, for Sunday Mass. The Eucharistic prayer conveys doctrine. It's not phrased in terms of a teaching, it's a prayer to God. But it reflects what the church believes and the way it lives. So Yaroslav Pelikan sees that you don't, when you want to understand the doctrine of the church, you don't just look at explicit teaching statements and sermons. You, you look at the prayers of God's people, the life experience of God's people, uh, and, and you see doctrine expressed there. And that's part of what tradition conveys, is that living experience of prayer and worship and life. Secondly, he says, what the church teaches. Doctrine is explicit many times. And it's, ordinarily, there's countless times when the church is teaching through its ministers, through its officers of various kinds. There are people who are lay catechists, and there are priests who are ordained priests. There are bishops who are successors of the apostles. And in that teaching of all those kinds of people, that explicit teaching, you can see reflected the doctrine of the church. But then he says, besides what the church believes and teaches, he, he includes another category, what the church confesses. When the church, and he's talking here about a more formal confession of faith, a more formal proclamation of faith, an official proclamation of faith by the officers of the church, by the bishops of the Catholic Church. That's what oftentimes when, when the bishops of the Catholic Church confess something solemnly, often that is what we call dogma. Dogma is what is proposed by the church as being clearly revealed by God and must be believed by all. That's dogma. 
So dogma is a subset of doctrine. Doctrine is a global uh, kind of thing. Uh, it, it includes everything that, that provides us direction for the way in which to live life. And uh, dogma are those things that are clearly and many, many times formally taught, officially taught, solemnly taught in many cases, but nonetheless, in, whether they're solemnly taught or not, they're proposed to us that, for belief, the non-negotiable things that we have to believe. Okay? They're connected to revelation. This, when, when someone says that something's dogma, it means that it is a part of revelation. It's connected to revelation. It, it's non-negotiable. It, it's binding. It's definitive. Okay? That's what we're talking about when we talk about what the church confesses. Now, it's just important to understand something. There's a lot more to doctrine than simply the solemn confessional statements of the church. There's a lot more to doctrine. But those things have a certain role, a very important role. They're, um, they, they show limits as to uh, where we can go and what we have to believe. There are some elements of, of Catholic teaching that are, that are not quite dogma. For example, the, the church's position on capital punishment has changed somewhat. That is doctrine, and we've seen growth in that doctrine. But the church has never changed and can never change what it teaches that, that Christ is true God and true man. That is dogma. There's growth in understanding that, but that's proclaimed from the very beginning as a non-negotiable central dimension of our faith. Okay? There's a hierarchy of truths in doctrine, and that gets to what I just talked about with dogma. There's a hierarchy of truths in that all truth is truth and is important. And there's a connection between all truth. We know that there's an analogy of faith we mentioned earlier where every truth is connected to every other truth. Every word of Scripture and assertion of Scripture is connected to every other word and assertion of Scripture. But there's a hierarchy. There are some truths, none, no truths are expendable, but there are some truths that are more central than other truths. That's important. And it was first articulated at the Second Vatican Council. It's important because it helps us to understand the common ground that we have with other Christians who are not in full communion with the Catholic Church. It helps us understand how close we are. It helps us understand that in the most important things, we oftentimes are, are uh, at one, the most central things. Okay? What are the most central things? What are the, the center of the hierarchy of truths? Well, that's clearly laid out in the Second Vatican Council. It's who God is as three persons in one God and who Christ is as God and man. Those are the first dogmas that were defined solemnly by the church in the very first two ecumenical, three, three or four ecumenical councils. Those are the most important central truths of our faith. So those truths are, are non-negotiable and, and they're, they're central. There are many other non-negotiable truths that are, Catholics must accept, but are not quite as central as those two fundamental areas. There is development of doctrine, and I want to share a little bit about that with you. Development of doctrine is really equivalent idea to the growth of tradition. Because what we're talking about is not that we add truth to the deposit of the faith, but that as time goes on, as we grow in our understanding of Christ, tradition grows. Our grasp of the truth grows as we plummet, as we ponder it, as we seek to live it out. So the development of doctrine isn't development of truth, it's development of our ability to teach about it because we've understood it better. It gets clearer as time goes on. And so the expressions of the church's teaching get clearer 
and clearer and more comprehensive. Does it mean that the earlier expressions of the church's teaching were wrong? No, they were just incomplete. And because God's truth is inexhaustible, because God is mystery, every doctrinal statement of the church is necessarily incomplete. It can't possibly be complete. So uh, there's room for improvement. There's room for growth, not for addition of new truths, not for throwing out of, of dogmas, no, but for growth and understanding. That's what the development of doctrine is all about. And you can see this in Dei Verbum number 8. It talks about growth and insight into the realities and the words being passed on in tradition. John 16, 13 talks about growing understanding, right, in, in the New Testament. And Lumen Gentium 12 talks about how we come to penetrate more deeply and apply it more accurately and more adequately, the it being the Christian truth that's passed on to us in the tradition. Okay? So there's a development of doctrine that sometimes is very continual and just moves forward like this. Sometimes there's a development of doctrine that's a little bit more jagged, uh, not quite as clear. For example, the teaching on religious liberty. In the early church, it was very clear that God is a God of persuasion, not of compulsion. That God has patience and doesn't push the, the human race and those who resist him, but rather waits. Uh, and so in the early church, there was, there was no question of anyone, the church ever supporting the persecution of heretics, for example, for their beliefs. Whereas at a later point in time, that earlier understanding was lost. Uh, it was never taught that it was right um, in explicit teaching to, to persecute or you know, uh, heretics. It was never taught infallibly, but many bishops, many priests taught it, support it. And only in this, in, in this century has it become clearer uh, that it that is absolutely incompatible with the nature of Christianity to try in any way to compel someone to Orthodox faith. That was clearly taught in the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Liberty. But it was in a certain way, there was one step forward, a, one step back and two steps forward at the Second Vatican Council. That, so sometimes development of doctrine is a little bit less than a perfect climb uh, and, and continual growth, but many times it is. Heresy and orthodoxy. A couple of, a couple of terms that I just want to share uh, a, a little bit with you about. One is, one idea here, heresy everyone knows is something that's contrary, a serious denial of Catholic truth. And orthodoxy is holding fast to Catholic truth. What I think is important to understand is why is something heretical and why is something orthodox? Is something bad because it's forbidden by the authority of the church? Or is, it is, is an idea forbidden by the authority of the church because it's fundamentally bad, because it's fundamentally wrong, because it's fundamentally disordered, imbalanced? Well, it's the second that's really true. Orthodoxy is all about balance. It means right opinion. And I like to use the illustration of a volleyball net. When both poles of, of the volleyball net are upright and they're held in tension by the net and by the, the stakes, everything is straight. But when one pole collapses and is let go, the whole net falls down. It's no longer straight doctrine. And that's really what, what heresy is all about. There are two poles always when it comes to a mystery of, of God. At least it appears like two poles in our minds. Christ is divine? Well, how could he be human then? They seem to be two opposite poles. 
So heretics from all ages have wanted to choose one or the other. They minimize Christ's divinity and exaggerate his humanity or vice versa. Same thing with three persons in one God. All the heretics go to one side or the other. Either God is three persons and three gods, and you have people who go into to polytheism, or on the other hand, you know, there's only one God, there's no personhood in the three anymore. It's, they, they just won. So they, they, think about free will, uh, the, the denial of free will. Either we're, we're, we have free will, okay, on the one hand, and therefore we don't need God's grace, we can do everything on our own, or everything's grace and there's no free will. You know, every, we're just, it's just determined who's going to be saved, who's going to be damned. These are the problems uh, with human minds trying to grasp God's truth. They seem, there seem to be contradictions, and so we flee to what's simple and easy to understand. Orthodoxy is holding both sides of, of the truth in tension, even if it's uncomfortable. And um, heresy means choice. Literally, the word heresy means choice. Choice for one and a choice against another side of the truth. So, there's a couple of kinds of heresy. One is material heresy. Material heresy means that the objective opinion that a person has is imbalanced and contrary to the teaching of the church. Formal heresy means that you know that the teaching is contrary to the teaching of the church, but you hold it anyway. Material heresy is just the opinion itself, without no knowledge of, of, of its wrongness, okay? Material heresy is certainly, you know, a one-sided choice, but it's not necessarily culpable, okay? It's partiality instead of wholeness. The word Catholic means wholeness. It means universal, according to the whole, the whole truth rather than a part of the truth. The church that's extended over the whole world, not some local little sect. So it's all about integrity. And the Catholic tradition is passing on Catholic truth, Catholic doctrine that holds fast all dimensions of the tradition, that passes it on whole and entire without choices, heretical choices made for one thing as opposed to another thing. Now, that being said, we have to talk about a challenge and a problem. How is it that the tradition handed on from one generation to the next is the authentic? How do we know that it's the authentic Catholic tradition. How is it that that tradition doesn't get seriously botched up? Now, obviously, there, there are many who are not Catholic who look at the Catholic tradition and think it has been seriously botched up, and they don't accept the authority of the Catholic Church and of its tradition. How is it that, you know, the, the tradition, this tradition is right and another tradition is not? How can we know that? Well, it's very important to understand that the tradition was entrusted to the whole church, that everybody participates in the handing on of the tradition. It's a common effort of the entire people of God. In De Verbum 10, um, that's what it says. Now, I want to talk pastorally a, a little bit about how important this truth is. If tradition is the passing on of the faith, and it has to be lived out, and people have to live in it to get it, okay, then think about the most important places where the tradition is passed on. Think about the role of the family. It's the domestic church. It's the place where people, as they're growing up, spend most of their time. Children do. Okay, They may go to school, but there's a constancy in their family life, if the family is stable, of course, where there's an opportunity for a tremendous amount 
of things to be passed on, not just explicitly, but implicitly. Mom and dad are passing on Catholic values, Catholic tradition, in the way they respond to crises, in the way they respond to per injuries, people hurting each other, uh, as well as you know, prayer being part of daily life. There's lots of things where the tradition is passed on and caught. Also, think about Catholic schools. Why, why are Catholic schools important? Well, because you, you can't just convey the Catholic tradition in a half an hour or an hour catechism lesson through explicit teaching once a week. It has to be caught. So where do, people, where do young people spend most of their time outside of the family? It would be in school. So the, this Catholic school is a tremendous opportunity to pass on the living tradition, not just in catechism classes, but in the lifestyle of the, the school itself, the social dynamic of the school. Teachers, faculty, mothers, fathers, having a Christian culture that they're passing on, a tradition they're passing on and living out. So that's a very important thing to understand. Okay, there's indispensable roles. The religious community is a surrogate family where there's tremendous ability for the tradition they passed on. Um, I know many who, who have had the great privilege of, of living in religious houses, if not for all their life, for many years of their life, and being able to catch, live in, absorb the, the, the liturgical tradition, the, the contemplative prayer tradition of the church. Um, so th these are ways where you, one can get immersed in the Catholic tradition, in a Catholic family, in a Catholic school, in a Catholic religious institution. But still, the question remains, how can you guarantee that there's, this is an authentic expression of the Catholic tradition from age to age? And the answer is because the Catholic community is being guided by successors of the apostles. The apostolic succession of pastors ensures continuity and accuracy. You see that in Day Verbum 7 and in 9. Okay? And this idea of apostolic, apostolic succession, that it's not a free-for-all, that the leadership of the church needs to succeed from one generation to the next, that the torch needs to be passed so that the, the torch of tradition can stay alive and be passed accurately in the church. That idea goes back to 2 Timothy 2. Paul says to Timothy, Paul has trained Timothy, and he says, What you have heard from me, before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The succession of pastors assures the succession of truth, of the succession of an accurate tradition. In fact, the very first great uh, exposition of tradition in the church was in the second century, the work of St. Irenaeus, and that's the way he argued about tradition. The Gnostics appealed to secret tradition they had a secret tradition going back to the apostles. And it was said very clearly by Irenaeus, your tradition is bogus because we can document our bishops today go all the way back to the apostles. We can look at the pedigree. And there was a personal handoff, a personal transmission of teaching authority and teaching doctrine. And you don't have that. So our tradition is authentic and yours isn't. So the magisterium, the, the apostolic succession of the bishops of the Catholic Church they, that guarantees the accuracy uh, of the tradition. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.